You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. All right, we're back from our holiday break. How have you been? Feels so good to talk to you again. I know. it's. I'm very excited to be talking to you again. Not that we don't text and stuff over. I'm tired. We had a really, really great time with my late husband's dad and his wife. They came for Christmas. We went to see Sixth the Musical, which was great. So many of you messaged us about that when we covered The Six Wives. Mm. And you were all right. It's a really, really fun show. Oh, and it was also nice because my father-in-law, he's in his late 70s, and we went down to the Cape to my dad's house for Christmas. And if you're on my Instagram, then you will have seen we had a white Christmas, and it was his first ever white Christmas. So that was pretty cool. But the rest of the break was, it's just kind of hectic. I felt like I had all these things that I wanted to get done, like Mm -hmm. on a to-do list, and like nothing got really checked off that list. I feel like we need a vacation to recover from our break. (sighs) Honestly. Mine was kind of fucked, oh, so yeah. I feel you. My sister and nephew got the flu two days before Christmas, like the real influenza. This year, a lot of people caught it, especially... I, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but here in Europe, a lot of people caught the, it the is. real flu. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's pretty bad this year. So they couldn't celebrate with us. And then Philip and I got it just two days before New Year's Eve, and it was bad. I was running a high fever for two days with fever dreams and being confused the whole time. Mm. Three days of not eating, sweating, and so on. You know the deal. Oh, I do. I'm still not kind of recovered. It's been three weeks now, and I'm still lying down most of the time. The only good thing was that when I was really sick, Philip was still fit enough to take care of me. And once he got really sick, I was better and could take care of him, right? It was helpful then in that way. Yeah, but still... Out of the three weeks, we spent two weeks just in bed. And I had so many plans, mostly sewing. But I couldn't do anything. Yeah, but hey, the good thing is at least I caught up on some movies and TV shows I had on my list for a long time. That's always good. I'm glad you're both recovered and doing okay, because the actual flu is a lot more serious than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm still, when I'm coughing, my, my lung is on fire. Oh... It's horrible. Oh. But I think we will do a catch-up on Patreon and just jump into this episode because not everybody cares about our holiday that much, right? That's, I would agree with that, yeah. <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we, of course, want to thank our newest patrons. They are Heather and Susie Kate. Thank you so much. I am still in the process of sending pins out. So if you've been waiting, don't worry. Hopefully, you'll have mail soon. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, uh, so let's start, I'd say. Today we are not only jumping back in time, we are also traveling to the other side of the globe, uh, the other side for us at least. We are going to Australia. Can you hear my voice? I can. (laughs) I wish we were really going to Australia. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to Australia and it's 1902 and we want to talk about the unsolved murder of Bertha Schippern. It's the murder of a 13-year-old girl. It's it's a brutal one, but it doesn't include sexual assault. So just so you know what's going to happen in this episode. So for this, we're going to South Australia, to a tiny rural settlement called Tuwita. 
Either, yeah, Tawitta, Tawitta. T-O-W-I-T-T-A. Yeah, it's named after the nearby spring Tewiti. Tewitta was founded in 1876 by German settlers. Uh, the local public school was open from 1880 to 1949. And the latest census shows us that Tewitta had 26 inhabitants in 2021. That's pretty much all I found about the place. Next to this quote that I'm going to read you that describes the place in a couple of sentences, it's from an article in the Sydney Morning Herald from 17th of September 1984 from page 53. And it's titled The Day I Solved the Shippon Murder by Ken Ross. We will get back to this article in the end. But Ken Ross writes, quote, so here I was driving around Tewitta, the town where the crime took place, asking questions about this bizarre murder. Tewitta is in poor limestone country, not far from Truro in South Australia, where seven girls were brutally murdered just a few years ago. Not so far either is the lush Barossa Valley, yet the Tewitta district is barren and dry, a pocket of agricultural poverty surrounded by plenty. End quote. Yeah, that doesn't sound like... Any place you'd want to live, wouldn't it? A pocket yeah. of agricultural poverty surrounded mm -hmm. by plenty. Yikes. And also the Truro murders are terrible. Case File has a very comprehensive, like, two-hour episode on them. Oh, I have to check it out. Really, like, really. I know just a little bit about that case, yeah. Yeah. Bad. The next bigger town is called Sedan. Sedan? I would say sedan, but that's how we, that's how we spell a sedan, like a type of car. But I have no idea... However you pronounce it is probably right, because these people were German-speaking. So, however <laughs> you pronounce it, I feel like, is fine. Because that's how the original inhabitants would more than likely have pronounced it. Maybe. Not original well. inhabitants, but the original German inhabitants. Sedan, Sedan. And I use quotation mark when I say bigger, because uh, that town has a little bit over 200 inhabitants. Pretty much like the tiny village I moved to two years ago. And Sedan lies 100 kilometers or 62 miles east of Adelaide. And I found this very interesting description that can give you an idea about the area in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And it's from murrayriver.com.au slash Sedan. <laughs> I have to decide on the pron pronunciation now. I decided for yours. <laughs> well, I went with you. <laughs> yeah. Quote. The history of Sedan. Historically, Sedan was a place to pass through. With no surface water, it was only visited seasonally by Aborigines who lived along the River Murray or those who lived in the hills. White settlers lived seasonally in little huts that dotted the countryside. They visited in the spring and winter, fed their stock and returned to the hills when the feed ran out. The overlanders, using the old Sydney track, which was the stock route between the eastern states and Adelaide, passed through Sedan. The Hundred of Bagot was proclaimed on the 19th of April 1860. It was one of the many land releases of the time, relieving pressure on the Adelaide plains and hills for the developing colony. People were then able to cultivate the land and settle permanently. Early settlers were the Germans, seeking religious freedom and the British who sought better living conditions. The town is surrounded by dry stone wall structures built by these early settlers. With much community effort by people with foresight, our town and our heritage is what it is today. Nowadays, you'll find a great country town with a great country hospitality. Stop in at the local pub or a cold drink and a great feed. End quote. 
I think you all know by now that I'm kind of obsessed with all things like the Oregon Trail, Pioneer Life, and so on. So basically people who just, you know, got up one day and tried to find a better place to live. And one can understand why people would want to settle in Oregon, for example, or Montana, or California, right? But when I was reading this description, I was wondering why some people decide to make a rather harsh and unwelcoming area their home. Do you think it's because some religious groups just wanted to get away from prosecution and thought that if they choose an uninhabitable or mostly uninhabitable place, is that even a word, uninhabitable? Yeah. Chances were higher that they were left alone, like the Mormons in Utah, for example? Yeah, definitely. I think that's part of it. People would leave them alone if there was an area that nobody really wanted to visit. I also don't know enough about the religion to know whether they felt suffering was actually part of it. I know there are quite a few Christian religions that that think that mm-hmm. like it's almost good to su- you should suffer, like suffering is so so that might be part of the appeal. And I think it also depends on what was left in terms of large amounts of usable land, right? Because I think people with means would have already developed the the nicer places, maybe. Yeah, true. Yeah. Not to say that's like, well, that was all that was left in Australia at that time, obviously not. That wasn't the case, but you know what I mean. (laughs) So yeah, the first European settlers in Tawita and Sedan were Germans. And I didn't know that, but apparently from the 1830s until the 1860s, around 20,000 Lutheran Germans came to live in Australia. And the Australian Lutheran Church was actually founded in South Australia. So This is a little description of the Lutheran Church in Australia. It's from lca.org.au, quote, The Lutheran Church was established in South Australia in 1838 by German emigrants from Prussia, who came because of religious persecution. Although this persecution ceased in the mid-1840s, many more Germans followed, seeking the better life that the first migrants reported to them. Settlements were established at Klemzig, Handorf, Lobetal, and in the Barossa Valley. Some 20,000 German Lutherans migrated to South Australia between 1838 and 1860. With the expansion of settlement, the German Lutherans began to spread out across the state in search of larger land holdings. In their settlement, they soon built churches and schools. The Lutheran Church was predominantly a rural church and it remained so for over 100 years. With the growth of cities from the 1950s and the recent rural decline, there has been a steady rise in urban congregations. End quote. And then the article talks about how the German family started to move to other states. So they went to Victoria, they went to, to New South Wales, uh, to Queensland, to the, even to Tasmania, and so on. And then the article continues, quote, 45% of all Lutherans in Australia today are found in South Australia. Queensland has 25%, Victoria 15%, and the remaining 15% in New South Wales, Western Australia, and Tasmania. German continued to be the language of many Lutheran homes for up to three or four generations. Similarly, the language of the Lutheran Church was German in its worship and its business. In the early 1900s, moves were made to introduce English, and this was hastened by the outbreak of World War I. There was a transition period in the 1920s and 1930s, and after World War II, only English was used. End quote. Hmm. That's interesting. It's very interesting, and I really, I had no idea. No, me neither. What I would also like to add is that we know that the indigenous people of of Australia suffered great injustice and horrible treatment from Christian missionaries, 
And I know that the Lutheran Church had missionaries and missions. I know that the Australian government closed all Lutheran missionary schools during World War One, which makes sense as Great Britain and Germany were enemies in that war, once again. They're right. And I would have loved to find more info on how Lutheran missions worked if they were just as cruel as Catholic and Protestant missions. I think that none of it was great, but I don't know for sure, so I don't I don't have any detailed information about that. I don't really either, but I think it's probably safe to assume that, you know, it wasn't good. I can't think of any indigenous group that yeah. wasn't abused by colonizers, can you? It's never good. If we're wrong and this one was good, let us know, but... Mm. So one of the families that came from Prussia to Germany were the Shippens. And on February 7th, 1854, a ship arrived in Adelaide, and on board were many Prussian immigrants, and with them, the 57-year-old Martin Shippen, his 27-year-old wife Anna, and their two sons, 5-year-old Martin and 3-year-old Matthias or Matthias. That's a long journey with two toddlers. Oh, I can't even imagine. The ship had left Hamburg on the 5th of October, 1853, so the journey took four months. We don't know much more about the life of the Shippens once they arrived in Adelaide, but it's probably safe to assume that they settled in or near Towida pretty soon after their arrival. In 1874, so when Mattis, the youngest son, was 24 years old, he married a woman named Johanna Louise Elizabeth. She, too, was born in Prussia on 9th of April, 1844, so she is six years older than he is, and she, too, had migrated with her family when she was only seven years old. And via Ancestry.com, we found a note that said, quote, Immigration, 1st September, 1851, San Francisco, in quotes, age seven. And so at first we thought that the family traveled to San Francisco, and then later on they ended up in Australia which didn't make a lot of sense. But then Johanna <laughs> figured out that San Francisco was the name of the ship that they were on that had journeyed between Hamburg and Adelaide in the 1850s. Nice yeah. work, Johanna. That was... <laughs> it was a, a literal light bulb. It really... I was like, it, why would they go to San Francisco and then end up in Australia? Like, Yeah. I mean, it, it might have happened for, for some, but it's uh, not usual. I'd say. Yeah, it is. It's not unusual to have ships named after places, though. And it's, I have been confused by it in the past. So now with this new knowledge, I'm gonna redouble back my efforts. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get back to this really terrible, horrific crime. So Johanna and Matthias, they married on the 23rd of July, 1874, at the Lutheran Chapel in Eden Valley, South Australia. Eden Valley, by the way, looks beautiful, judging by photographs, so the name makes sense. If you've been, please tell us all about it. It lies 25 kilometers or 15 miles southwest of Tawita, where the newlyweds settled, and they would go on to have seven children. Okay, here we go. Pauline Augusta, born 1875, Maria Augusta, born 1877, Frederick Karl Martin, born 1879, Heinrich Johann Gustav, 1881, August Wilhelm, 1883, Wilhelm Johann Gottlieb, 1886, and the youngest, Johanna Elizabeth, who was called Bertha, and she was born in 1888. That poor woman was just pregnant for more than a decade. Like, that is amazing. Not that it wasn't common for the time, 
that anytime I read, you know, like a baby every two years, I just, oh, that's hard on your body. And I've never even had a baby, but I don't know how. Anyway, the good news is, really good news, is none of those children died in infancy. At that time, that's a miracle. But in 1899, their firstborn daughter, Pauline, died at the age of 24 because of pneumonia. Very sad. But today we're here to talk about another daughter's death, and that wasn't their oldest daughter, but rather their youngest daughter, Yohane. So it's like J-O-H-A-N-N-E. Is that a common version of your name? I mean, it's obviously a variation of my name, and not only my name, but the mother's name, who was also named Johanna. Hmm. But nowadays it's very uncommon. I think it was never as common as Johanna, with an A, but still kind of used in the late 19th, early 20th century. I personally have never heard it used in real life. I think I've once heard of a writer with the name Johanna. What I find even more interesting is that they call her Beata, as short for Elizabeth, because Beata is its own name that has nothing to do with Elizabeth. So that's very interesting and unusual, and I would love to know the story behind that. Yeah, I know a lot of nicknames for the name Elizabeth, but... Berta, Bertha, as we would say here, B-E-R-T-H-A, would not make that list. It reminds me a little bit, we had neighbors when we were kids, and they had boys that were a little older than us, and one of the sons was named Brian, but they called him Kip. So it could be one of those things where there's like a a legal name that honors people in the family or something like that, but then they just Mm. never use that name. I know a few people like that, where nobody calls them by their given names, ever, never have done. But it's not that common, and that's the only thing I can sort of think of. But yeah, I also wonder wonder where that came from. All right. So now we are on the 1st of January, 1902. Matthias and Johanna are away. They're visiting relatives in Eden Valley. Some sources say that they were in Perth, but I don't think that's correct because Perth is in Western Australia, which is 1,680 miles or 2,700 kilometers west of Eden Valley. That would today be a 29-hour drive, and back then Mm. it would have been weeks. So, no, we think, as most sources say, we believe that they were in Eden Valley. Pardon my slightly scratchy voice, I'm not sure what's going on there. The two older boys, 22-year-old Frederick and 20-year-old Heinrich, are away as well. They're working on a farm somewhere. That leaves 24-year-old Maria, 13-year-old Bertha, and the two younger brothers, 18-year-old August and 15-year-old Wilhelm at home. I've probably said all those names very, very differently from how you would. I think it was good. I get very self-conscious about doing a German accent for you. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like French, any other language, it's all right, because, eh. But anyway. The two boys decide that they're going to sleep in the barn, or it might have been a different outbuilding. It was some outbuilding that night. They weren't sleeping in the house. They were on the property, though. And Maria and Bertha settle down for the night in their beds in the house. I think some people find it weird or suspicious that the boys were sleeping in the barn or whatever building that was. But it reminded me of something my great aunt had told me last time I talked to her. So my father's side of the family, they were rather poor. They lived in a one-bedroom, one-kitchen house. And there was two grown-ups, my great-grandparents, and seven children. So a total of nine people. Almost exactly like the Shippans here, right? And during the summers, the four boys would sleep up in the attic so that everybody would have a little bit more space. Now, January in Australia is summer. Temperatures are pretty hot. And I don't know, I I think from what I read and I looked at photos of houses 
there from the time. I don't think the house was luxuriously big for such a big family. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm thinking for the summer, to give everyone a bit more space, they would move the boys, maybe. Just like my, my grandfather and his brothers did. Oh, yeah. And okay, that night, four of those eight people were not home. But what if they were just settled in the barn for the whole summer and they saw no reason to move over for one or two nights? That's what I think happened. Mm -hmm. I think that actually makes perfect sense. And also the boys were of an age where a little bit of independence would be wanted and given. Yeah. So honestly, it really, it does not seem odd to me in the slightest. So, right, everybody settled in for the night and they fall asleep. But it was only a couple of hours later, around 10 p.m., that the boys were awakened by horrible screams coming from the house. And only a few moments later, their oldest sister Maria came running and she told the boys that she had been awakened by feeling a heavy weight on her chest. And when she opened her eyes, she saw a man lying on top of her, or she felt a man lying on top of her. Maria started to fight with the intruder. He slammed her head against the sewing machine that was in the room. But during the fight, she could hear what she suspected to be a knife. He dropped a knife. It was so dark in the room that she couldn't see it, but she heard it fall to the floor. And so while he was struggling to pick it up again, Maria could escape and she ran out of the house and over to where her brother slept. Berta was still in the house. The three then decided that it was too dangerous to go back into the house while the armed man was still in there. So the brother thought best to run over to the closest neighbor who lived half a mile or 800 meters from their house. And so they wake him up in the middle of the night and the neighbor tells them to run to get the constable who lived a mile away. So that's 1.6 kilometers. That's a lot of running in just a very short time. It is. And I think this whole time Maria stayed close to the house. At least she's not mentioned in any of the newspaper articles. It's only ever mentioned that the brothers ran to get help, right? Yeah. So the constable returns and he enters the house and he finds 13-year-old Berta lying on the floor, dead. Her throat was slit and I found some newer newspaper articles that mentioned that her body showed 40 stab wounds. But honestly, in the coroner reports and uh, more contemporary, well, of that time, contemporary articles, I could find no such thing. So this is quite possibly just lore added later on to make the crime even more disturbing than it already is. Mm. Mattes and Johanna were informed as soon as possible and they returned home and pretty soon afterwards Berta's funeral took place. I think this is due to the fact that it was summer and the temperatures in South Australia are rather high around this time of the year. There was just no way of cooling the body, I assume. But then, only a couple of days later, she was exhumed again when the coroner could finally examine the body, which is... yeah. No. So he came to the conclusion that the cause of death was the cutthroat. There was no mentions at all of sexual assault. I think in one of her testimonies, Maria was explicitly asked if the assailant had tried to rape her, and she said that he did not. And... Here is the description of what the coroner found. It was only published at the end of the trial that would take place in March. And one thing to keep in mind is the papers often call Maria Mary. Yes. So, this is from The Age, 10th of March 1902, page 4. Dr. Steele of Angerston described the finding of the body on 2nd of January. It was lying prone on the floor, the head resting on the right forearm and the left hand under the cheek. The body was rigid. There was a piece of a blue blouse alongside the body, soaked in blood, and it was similar to the blouse the deceased was wearing. 
Witness described in detail the injuries to deceased's throat. There were several cuts, stabs and scratches, some extending to the vertebral column. Both ears were cut through and there were three wounds in the face and one in the palm of the left hand. So that's a lot of defensive wounds, I assume, right? Yeah. The cause of death was the cutting of the carotid artery. He also examined Mary Shippen. She was wearing a pink blouse and a dark blue skirt. There were two transverse scratches on the inner side of her right upper arm and a slight bruise over the outer side of the right shoulder. Both elbows were slightly scraped. There were scratches on both hands, principally between the fingers, but they were not so severe as on deceased's hands. And there were bruises and abrasions on the knuckles. There were also bruises and discolorations on the legs. Prisoner complained of the pain of pains in the right shoulder and elbow and the left hip. He could find no external cause to account for the pain on the elbow and hip, but the shoulder had a bruise. He could find no abrasion on Mary's knee to account for the stains which he rubbed off with a wet cloth. In cross-examination he said that the wounds were evidently made by a right-handed person and deceased evidently tried to defend herself with her hands. He believed the fatal wound was received when Berta was standing. Dr. Ramsey Smith, who also gave evidence at the inquest, stated that the result of his examination of Mary's clothing and the finding of bloodstains on them, chiefly on the dark blue skirt and black stockings. He also found bloodstains on the piece of cloth with which Dr. Steele removed the stains from Mary's knee. There were bloodstains on the towel found in the kitchen and hair adhering to it. Some of the hair had been torn out by the roots. He examined the house and found bloodstains on the walls, in the three rooms and on the sofa and beds. He was struck with the little blood on the floor as compared with the quantity on the beds and sofas. He attended the examination of deceased at Seedon Cemetery on 16th of January. He found a few more cuts than those described by Dr. Steele. At the back of the right thumb he found attached to the skin a small coil of fine light hair which he removed. It was not like the hair of deceased, it was more like Mary's hair in character. After the severance of the carotid artery, death must have been instantaneous and with a gaping neck like that of deceased, death would occur in a few seconds or a few minutes at the outside. End quote. Also, something I noticed everywhere, uh, even on her headstone, Bertha is named as 14 years old, but her 14th birthday would have been two weeks after her death. I think it was because she was almost 14, that's why they decided to go with that. I think I, they even mentioned it in, a, in an article, that she was shy of her 14th birthday. Yeah. So a week after the murder inquiries started, all the witnesses were brought in to be questioned. And of course, the most important witness was Maria Shippen, who, again, will be called Mary pretty frequently in the press. So this is from the Sydney Morning Herald, 11th of January, 1902, Saturday, page 9. Quote, they never heard anything after that until she thought it was about 10 o'clock when she awoke. She turned round and a person jumped up. She got out of bed. He caught her by the two arms and pushed her up against the sewing machine. Witness got near to the kitchen door and was knocked against a little table. Witness got near the middle door and felt he had something in his hand. She felt it was a knife. While she was just near the middle door, she heard something drop. That was a knife. She got loose. She had an old skirt lying on a chair in her bedroom near the middle door leading out to the kitchen. She caught hold of this and rushed out from the middle room through the kitchen and out of the kitchen door into the open air. Coroner. There was no light? No, there was no light. How did you find your way to the door? I knew my way. How was the door? 
The kitchen door was closed with the latch on. I opened the door, caught hold of the string, and pulled the latch up. From the time you woke up, and when struggling, did you call out? Yes, I called out Gustav, Gustav. Did you call out loud? Yes. Did your sister hear you? Yes, she called out Gustav, Gustav. She was in bed? Yes, I think so. That was when I was struggling with the man. I heard her call out. Did your sister ever make any effort to get out of bed while you were struggling with the man? I don't know that. There was nothing to prevent her. So then she continued to say she went across to the boys, and when she passed the house, she heard her sister scream out once. When she got to the boys, she called Gustav. He did not get up at once. She then told him to get up because there was someone in the house. He did not believe it and said she was dreaming. She called again, Gustav, do hurry, get up, there is someone in the house. He got up and dressed. She said he had better go over to Hank's to tell him to come over. Gustav ran over. Witness and Willie stayed in the boy's room until he returned. Hank did not come with him. He had told Gustav that it would be better to go to Lambert's to get the constable. When Gustav came back, he got a big stick. Willie and Witness got pitchforks and went to the house. Gustav opened the kitchen door and lit the lamp on the table. Willie and Witnesses stood by the kitchen door. The middle door was closed and they could hear nothing. Gustav called out once, Berta? There was no answer. Willie said, Look at the blood on the sofa. Gustav blew the light out and they went outside. They shut the door and went up to Lambert's. She knew a man named Gustav Nitschke. Coroner, does he keep company with you? Yes. Is he your sweetheart? Yes. End quote. It's a bit confusing when she says she had been calling for Gustav during the attack and then they ask her if she knows a Gustav Nitschke. The Gustav she had been calling for was her brother Augusto, so don't confuse the two. Right. But why do they even ask about Gustav Nitschke? Why is he important? Well, because in the eyes of the prosecutor, it gave Maria a motive. Gustav and Maria were having a secret relationship for the last 12 months. They had to keep it secret because Mattes was a very strict father who would often punish his children if they did something he didn't approve of. He would often have violent outbursts. Uh, I think the children were rather afraid of him at times. It was rather common at the time, right? Especially in very small rural communities and even more so in very religious communities to have strict parents, yeah. really strict parents. The day before the murder, Nitschke had been over to visit Maria and the two had spent the evening alone in the kitchen, even after the sun had gone down. And remember, Maria and Bertha's parents had been gone to Eden Valley. They had left on the 27th of December and Bertha had been lying down on the sofa in the next room. And the prosecution figured that Bertha somehow noticed what was going on in the kitchen and had threatened Maria that she would tell her father everything. Another theory was that Maria had been jealous of her younger sister because Nitschke had asked Bertha if she wanted to accompany him to town. And that's why Maria had decided to kill her younger sister. Maria's clothes from that evening had been examined, as Annie read in the article, and little specks of blood were found on them. I mean, I'd say the wounds that were described on Maria, I don't know. Would they have been enough to bleed on herself? Maybe. Possible. She was bleeding on her knees, I think, and her elbows were scratched and stuff like that. Yep. They also found a knife in the house that had been cleaned but showed still some traces of blood on it. But according to Maria and her brothers, the knife had been used that day by the brothers to prepare some parrots. Um, oh. That they 
Oh dear. Hunting. Well, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> An Aboriginal hunter had been hired to examine the tracks that led from the house, but also when I say hired, mostly they had to work for free for the police in this kind of investigations. Mm. Yeah. So he was hired or he was asked to examine the tracks that led from the house. He could find no tracks of a man entering or leaving the house. I know these trackers are exceptional. But I also think that the circumstances were rather hard. I think he was called to look at the tracks on 14th of January, so that's two weeks after the murder. And I assume there must have been quite a lot of disturbance of the ground around the house in that time. Also, allegedly there had been a dust storm either on the night of the murder or shortly after, and that could have destroyed all the tracks. Oh, yeah. But all of this evidence was enough for the prosecution, and they charged Maria Schippen for the murder of her 13-year-old sister, Berta. Before she was taken away, Maria finished her chores and she cooked for the 16 policemen who were in the Shippen home at the time. Mm. The trial started on 5th of March 1902, I think in Adelaide, and of course there were so many looky-loos who wanted to attend the trial. And because it's a bit of a trip from Tuvita and Sedan and Eden Valley to Adelaide, you know, they all came with their picnic baskets and lunch boxes, and the ones who couldn't get into the building waited in front of the courthouse. They were hoping to get a glimpse of the alleged murderer. The Sydney Morning Herald from 8th of March 1902, page 10, wrote the following. Quote, the Tuwida Tragedy, Trial of Mary Shippen, Adelaide, Friday. The trial of Mary Shippen, charged with the murder of her sister Bertha, was continued at the criminal court today. A limited number of the public was admitted to the court, and the Shippen family, Gustav Nitschke, and other witnesses already examined also watched the proceedings. The remainder of the crowd stood outside the barred gates. The arrival of Mary Shippen, heavily wailed, was viewed by people through opera classes at windows and on roofs surrounding the courtyard. Later, the court adjourned at 7.20pm till tomorrow morning. Only the voluminous medical evidence now remains to be called to close the case for the prosecution. Voluminous medical evidence. So much evidence. Ooh, the evidence. We counted the stab wounds. We checked to see where the blood was. And uh -huh. done. What else do you need? It's fine. Altogether, 22 witnesses have been examined. The Chief Justice was asked whether the press could now publish the evidence as the medical man who had yet to be examined had remained in court during the whole of the proceedings. Sir J. Simon, counsel for the accused girl, objected and stated that the evidence would not make good moral reading for Sunday. Thereupon, the Chief Justice further withheld publication until Monday and added that this applied to interstate papers as well. End quote. <laughs> Didn't wow. make good moral reading for a Sunday. Listen, a murder is not... The appropriate reading for a Sunday. So let's just push it. Wait until Monday. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Gustav Nitschke, who was attending the trial, as they said, uh, as a witness, had to ask for police protection as he had been severely harassed by the crowd every time he walked from the courthouse to his hotel. And according to one newspaper article, he was even beaten up one time. That's not cool. Speaking of Nietzsche, you might wonder why he wasn't a suspect. I mean, he kind of was. The public did definitely think that he was a little sus, didn't they? they there was a lot of side-eye happening. But he had some kind of rock-solid alibi. He was ruled out for the night of the murder. He was away on business. He'd been in Adelaide, a trip that he had to take regularly once a week for work. 
and so they had said, no, there's no way it could be him. On the 12th of March, the verdict came in. The following is from the Southland Times, 13th of March, 1902, page 3. Quote, Adelaide, March 12. Mary Shippen, charged with the murder of her sister Bertha by cutting her throat at her parents' residence at Tewitta, was found, quote, unquote, not guilty. The verdict was received with satisfaction by 4,000 people outside the court who cheered loudly, end quote. I think it's very interesting that the crowd was on Maria's side here, yeah. according to that article, because we saw in previous newspaper articles that they were actually pretty convinced Maria had done it. They did paint her as a very jealous woman who showed no emotions when she saw her sister's body, which is not true, according to witnesses. They said that she burst out in tears. Mm. So I find it really interesting that they were cheering because she was found not guilty. It's it's very surprising. Yeah, I wonder whether it partly is because of that good old yellow journalism, the journalism at the time where there would just be so many lies. And I wonder if there were just, it was such a small community that people just didn't buy it. Were there enough people in the community to be like, no, I don't know. Because you mentioned the press fun fact. The public was so interested in this case that every newspaper tried to be the first to report new developments, of course. Most of the investigation took place in this very rural community, far from phones or telegraphs, so reporters would use bikes and horses to travel back and forth between Tuwita and Sidan and uh, Eden Valley. One newspaper went as far as purchasing a car only for the purpose of being able to report faster than the competition. And this is allegedly the first murder case in Australian history that a car was used to report the news. Oh, wow. That is interesting. But yeah, we you see this kind of stuff all the time. I think my very favorite example of yellow journalism, and you're all going to find this familiar, and if you don't, it's a doozy, was the headline, quote, Titanic survivors found on board. <laughs> like, uh, mm. what? <laughs> it was such an issue when I was researching the episode on that death at the Hotel Dell. It was, you know, you keep reading these big articles from, from, it's just nonsense. Nonsense. People said whatever they wanted to say in order to just sell more papers. And it's unfortunately still the case today. Um, which we don't need to tell any of you, but it's frustrating for us sometimes, isn't it? When you have something as a source and you think it's a legitimate yeah. thing, and then you're like, oh, for the love of God, this is all just a bunch of BS. Yeah. In the end, it was all rather circumstantial. Here is a list of all the alleged evidence and how it really didn't prove that Mary Maria had murdered her sister. So... The furniture, the bed sheets, and all of that were covered in blood, which is to be expected when someone has their throat cut. But why was there barely any blood on Mary's clothing that she was wearing at the time? Her chemise that she wore for sleeping that night would have shown more blood. I think, yeah. It yeah. should have, right? If she cut her sister's throat. That's a lot of blood. It's a lot of blood. A lot of blood. I don't see any way that she wouldn't have been... Or on her, her stockings, uh, she was wearing her black stockings uh, or socks, uh, her, maybe shoes, I don't know, but somewhere there, there would have been more blood. Yeah, the scenario that, I'm confused by where the blood was found, and we'll talk about more of that later maybe, but just, it seems like poor Berta really had quite a fight because mm -hmm. blood was found in so many different places, right? The tiny amounts of blood that were found on Mary's clothing could have been much, much older. I mean, 
at that time, blood is literally a part of everyday life, right? Like they, you didn't get your parrots from the grocery store. You had to, you had to prepare your own parrots at home. So small amounts of blood, that's not evidence. Yeah. And they don't have the technology yet to distinguish between human and animal blood. I think it was starting around that time, early 1900s, right? But Apparently, they didn't have access to that yet. No. It seemed like the prosecution had used Maria's relationship with uh, Nitschke solely to find a motive and to assassinate her character. Mm. She's 11 years older, right, than, than Berta. So yeah. she would have been 24. I don't know. It, it just seems bizarre to me that, that that's all they could come up with. It just doesn't seem... I don't buy it. I don't think it's likely... I don't know. No one else did either, apparently. <laughs> a hair was found in Bertha's hand that was assumed to be Maria's, but again, no proof that it was hers because we didn't have that at that time. And even if we did, hair, hair evidence is not reliable. And even if it was Maria's hair, what does it actually prove? They lived together. They slept in a, the same bed together. Just living yeah. together is plenty. Trust me. I have long hair. It it's on all my friends all the time. Yeah. What's next? The coroner argued that the wound was inflicted by a right-handed person on Bertha. I guess they could tell from the way she was slashed, mm -hmm. but Maria was left-handed, so that wouldn't fit. Yeah. And it seems that shortly after the trial, Maria and Gustav Nitschke married and moved to Port Piri, which is 143 miles or 230 kilometers north of Tawita. And that makes sense. You would want to move away after being accused of the murder of mm. your little sister, because something like this is always going to be hanging over your head in a small town. But then again, we have conflicting reports, because there's a note in the newspaper from May 1902 that says that Maria and Gustav got married and moved. But then there are more modern reports which say that Maria lived as a recluse and that Nietzsche left the country. They also say that the Shippen family built a new house after the trial. Um, so the house that still stands today is not the original house where the murder took place, which makes absolute sense. They tore the original one down and built a new one from stone. Mm. But then apparently the family moved away anyway, because people always side-eyed them. Yeah. So in 1908, they moved to Light Pass, which is just 30 kilometers or 18.5 miles northwest of Tawita. Mattes died on 31st of May 1911 at the age of 60. His wife died on 8th of September 1923 at the age of 79. They are both buried at the Straight Gate Lutheran Cemetery in Light Pass. Uh, Maria died on 4th of July 1919 at the age of 41 from tuberculosis and she's buried at the St. Peter's Lutheran Church Cemetery in Bower. And interestingly enough, her headstone says Maria Auguste Schippan and not Maria Auguste Nitschke. So I don't know what to make of the newspaper snippet saying that they got married and moved away. I don't know, is it possible that they just said they were going to get married, you know, to get people from talking? And then they just went their separate ways, and then Maria actually lived like a reclusive, lived this reclusive life until her end. Mm. Or did they separate later, and she was just buried under her maiden name? I don't know. It's I, I seriously, it I could no be idea. any of those. Mm. Yeah, it's it's hard to to work out, and um, it's just sad. Like it's a really 
it's just, I mean, they're always sad, aren't they? But this poor woman, I don't think either of us believes that she murdered her sister, do we? I have absolutely no idea what to believe. Yeah. Seriously, I have. I, I don't see a motive. I just... No. <sighs> well, and this is it. The case is unsolved. So was it Maria? Was it Nitschke? Was it a stranger? Some believe they know exactly who the culprit was. Remember the article we quoted in the very beginning that described um, Tawitta a bit? So that's from the Sydney Morning Herald, 17th of September, 1984, page 53. And it's entitled... The day I solved the Shippen murder. Okay. And it continues. Screenwriter Ken Ross left out his most important discovery when he wrote The Shippen Mystery on 2 at 8.30 p.m. Here he describes how he found what may be the final answer to the 82-year-old mystery. So this this writer has written a... What, no, I almost said as seen on TV. Has written a, uh, a life... life What's the word? What am I trying to think of? It was a made-for-TV movie, yeah. Made-for-TV movie, thank you. That's I literally couldn't remember the phrase made-for-TV movie. So I think that's what this is, right? Yeah. He's the screenwriter for a made-for-TV movie that was going to be on, on television. And here he describes, okay, quote, On the first day of 1902, Bertha Shippen's body was found. Her throat had been cut and there were over 40 stab wounds to her body. After the inquest, her older sister, Mary Shippen, was charged with murder. After one of the most sensational court cases in Australian history, Mary was found not guilty and cheered by thousands of supporters as she left an Adelaide court. In his summing up, the judge, Justice Way, said the stranger that Mary claimed visited their bedroom that night, quote, he came from nowhere and vanished into empty space, end quote. So here I was driving around Tawitta, the town where, where the crime took place, asking questions about this bizarre murder. Tawitta is in poor limestone country, not far from Truro in South Australia, where seven girls were brutally murdered just a few years ago. Not so far either is the lush Barossa Valley, yet the Tawitta district is barren and dry. A pocket of agricultural poverty surrounded by plenty. I had to keep reminding myself that Berta was murdered 80 years ago. The way the locals were behaving when I asked questions made me feel I was inquiring about a crime that may have taken place only the week before. In fact, I was asking questions because the ABC had commissioned me to write a television drama about this mystery. I came across the ship in murder when I was researching my play Breaker Morant. But this was different than any historical work I had previously done because here in the close-knit German district, the murder was folklore. The story had been passed down from generation to generation. At the time, the German community had closed ranks. It was bad publicity at a time when Britain and Germany were at diplomatic odds over the Boer War. Over 80 years later, men and women with the same name were as closed-mouthed as their forebearers. Why did I want to know? Such things are better left. But of course, I kept inquiring. I was far too committed to stop. Above all, I wanted to know whether Mary Shippen actually murdered her sister. The stranger that was said to have visited her home and killed her sister when her parents were away was still as mysterious as ever. I was talking to a farmer on his veranda. It was hot and the wind that never stops blowing in this area was humming its eerie tune just as it had at the district inquest in 1902. The farmer was talking more freely now, but he was still cautious. 
Yes, he admitted, his father had been a member of the inquest jury. Slowly I drew him out, and then he left me at his back door for a time, and came back with a photo of the infamous inquest, which had decided Mary should be sent to trial for the murder of her sister. So there was still guilt here in Tewitta, all right, passed from one generation to the next. We talked. Then, as I was about to leave, he let it drop. It was the father who did it, you know. He waited for my reaction. I made an effort to remain facially unmoved. Quote, confessed it on his deathbed, end quote. Was it part of this Tawita's mythology that Matthias Shippen did it, so the town had an end to the tale to tie up in a ribbon, so to speak? After all, none of us likes loose ends, least of all television viewers. But how did old man Shippen manage to get back from Eden Valley, where he was holidaying, to his home in Tawita in the middle of the night, then back again? I got my answer later that day. As a lad, one of the elder locals said he was told by a friend that he, the friend, had fed the horses on his father's farm where Matthias Shippen was staying. He found a horse in the stable, wet with sweat. Back in Adelaide, I spoke to a local Lutheran historian, a minister who had known the preacher who was with old man Shippen when he died. When a detective had questioned the preacher about the rumor of a deathbed confession, he had said, quote, he might have confessed, then he might not have, end quote. Meaning, I was informed, that the detective should stay out of such matters which belonged to a church and a man's conscience. So, I left all of this out of the television story. It was, I felt in the end, a red herring. But then was it? Perhaps I have let my audience down by not tying the ribbon neatly, like Tawita has. Sorry, but that's real life for you. You understand. End quote. So condescending. I don't see it. Why? No, I don't see it either. You know, it reminds me a lot of the Ashland tragedies that we covered before before our yes. uh, Christmas break, where also the father was immediately suspected to have murdered his, his daughters yeah. and, and the son. Yep. I think people, you know, so, you know, you remember when we covered the um, murder case that happened on my street in Wayland, Lauren Dunn Astley, when that happened, so many people said to me when they figured out like what had happened and who had murdered her. And I wonder if it's the same in, in Germany, but quite a few people said, oh, well, that's the kind of crime you want to have happen on your street. And what they mean by that, obviously, nobody wants any kind of crime, but it's better to have it be a family dispute of some kind, a breakup gone wrong, an abuse situation, you know, versus a stranger out there murdering people, which everybody finds terrifying. So I think there's that, I think there's always, always, always going to be that initial gut reaction to just blame someone in the family because it's less scary. It's still awful, but it's less... It's true. Terrifying for everyone else in the community, right? But I don't think. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he was described as being a, a very, very strict, but I, I, I think most of the fathers back then, especially there, were very strict, right? Uh, yeah. And I think Maria would have recognized if it was her father. True. Even when it was completely, you know your father. A hundred percent. Just the way my yeah. dad smelled, like my dad smells, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I really don't think. I think in one article she said that the intruder said, shut up. Mm. I mean, at least then she would have known. 
Right. Did he have an accent? Yeah. How did his voice sound? Familiar or not? And I don't think she was protecting her father if he had done something like that. No. No, I don't think so either. It, it There's just... The thing that's so interesting about this this case, this poor, sweet child that was was taken, is... There's blood evidence all over the place. There's blood all over the mm. sofa. There's blood all over the bed. So it seems to me, it reminds me of our very first episode a little bit, where it seems like Maria got out, and then the killer turned their attention to Bertha. Yeah, I was thinking about Smarty, uh, Smarty Nose. Right? Just like you. And it must have been pitch black, because yeah. the killer didn't go after Maria as a witness, right? Because they had a scuffle of some kind. I don't know. I also wonder why there was almost no blood on the floor, but all over the bed where they were sleeping. So that means he cut her throat on the bed. But yeah. then how did she end up on the floor if her death was instantaneous? Right. Was she posed? So weird. It's There's just, there's so much to this case that, that we don't have enough information on, I think yeah. is the thing that's so hard. And then so much is added on top of it. Like, yes, she had some stab wounds. But it was more like defensive wounds and not for... If you stab somebody 40 times, it's an overkill. Yeah. Well, the only thing that made me feel like overkill was the bit where her throat... Like, she was almost decapitated, wasn't she, from... It's a it's a scratcher. Because, again, it's, it's so... Did somebody just passing by? Was there just some yeah. horrible person? But that's in the middle of nowhere. I know. It's not like there was a train station nearby or... or it's... It's a place with 26 people or 30 people living there. But then the then. alternative is someone else in the community did it, if yeah. Maria didn't do it. That's um, one of the rare cases where I really have no idea what to think. No. I agree. Tell us what you I think. I really can't wait for our listeners. Yeah. You know some of them are going to have some great ideas about what might have yeah. happened, because they always do. They always do. Yeah. That's actually my something good. Our little tiny listener community, they are always so respectful when we talk about these things. They are not blaming victims. They are not harassing families. I say that because lately with these cases that have a lot of media attention, the Idaho murders, mm -hmm. the Gabby Petito case, the, the Delphi murders, I'm in a lot of true crime communities online. A lot. A lot also especially for these cases because I like to keep you know, up to date with the developments and, yeah. and what's happening. And a lot of new people, in my opinion, new people join true crime communities who have never been interested in true crime, maybe, and who have, you know, first time drawn to a case. Sure. There's always that first case that gets you into it, right? And the bigger the community gets, the more really horrible behavior it comes into these communities. Like, I see so much victim blaming lately, so much harassing of families posting of photos of family members like don't that's awful and that's why i'm so glad and that's why my something good is our community because they all are really respectful they when are talking about the, the cases yeah oh yeah absolutely our facebook group is just the nicest people really yeah, absolutely and they're they're cool <laughs> they're fun they're interesting yeah all over the world yeah for sure i love i love our listeners they're the best the best What's your something good? I got a new laptop. I finally got a new laptop. Yay! I got a new laptop from Paul for Christmas. So, fingers crossed that it works much, much better. I'm getting it all configured now, and 
I need to do some tests with it to make sure I have everything plugged in right, but <laughs> yay. I'm super excited. Gonna be good. I know. And he got me he got me this fancy video editing software package, which I didn't realize and probably would have tried to talk him out of. I'm still working on, he sees me working on that video I've been working on. I'm still working on it for our California trip. And um, he has a lot more faith in me than I have in myself. I'll just put it that way. It was really nice of him to buy that software. So we'll see how it goes. You're going to get a hang of it. I know it. Eventually. It's going to be good. (laughs) But yeah, that's it for this week. Are we doing a, are we going to do a January game night or hang night or anything? We can. End of January, probably. Yeah. We're going to post in the Patreon group, right? Yes, we will. Also, we still have the unboxing video. Mm. I sent Annie a box with Christmas stuff, and we recorded the unboxing, and I still have to, to edit it and upload it for you. I know, and I have to tell you the verdict on all the things we tried. Perfect. <laughs> nom, nom, nom. Yeah, so exciting things coming down the path, hopefully. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge favor. Go to your podcast app and check if you can leave us a rating and or review. Go to our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com. There you find links to our merch store, to our Patreon, to our Instagram, to our Facebook group, our email address, which is freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for all the case suggestions that we get. Doug, thank you for your poem that you sent we actually did a dramatic reading before christmas and everybody can find it for free open for everyone on our patreon that was amazing thank you that was so fun and a link to our p.o box thank you for everybody who sent us something for christmas we really appreciate it i was so touched i need to take some pictures and post them on my regular instagram because you'll see it in the facebook in the facebook video in the patreon video (laughs) but Yeah. yeah so touched by people who think of us it's really kind thank you please tell your pets we say hi we love them we miss them hug them cuddle them give them treats put them under the blanket or on a cooling pad if you're (laughs) somewhere where it's summer right now be kind to your pets be kind to your fellow human beings at least once and the most important and hardest part of it all be kind to yourself yeah please be nice to yourself it's not always easy so if you're having a hard time if you're going through hell Keep going. Tschüss. See you next week.